Hi, my name is Ahmad, and this is Exploration Radio, a podcast focusing on the past, present, and the future of exploration. On this week's episode, we're joined by... My name is Bruce McDonald. I, I'm the Executive Vice President of Global Geochemistry for ALS Limited, an Australian uh, traded company, a, a public exchange on the ASX. And um, uh, I guess my role in the company is to look after the entire business of uh, geochemistry, providing geochemical services to the exploration and, and mining industry worldwide. A few decades ago, companies worked hard at developing in-house technical expertise. This allowed companies to directly benefit from any technological innovations developed by these groups. But over the last couple of decades, things have changed. Companies now largely outsource technical innovation to service providers. This means service providers are now best placed to provide technology solutions to the industry. And we have become their customers. We're now somewhat reliant on them to help us. So we wanted to get their perspective on what challenges they face when they're trying to sell these technologies to mining companies. And we wanted to know, have we been good customers? Now the reason why we wanted to talk to Bruce and why we think he's perfect for this episode is because he has a really interesting background. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm a geologist, but I've dabbled in a lot of different things. My, my first degree uh, was geology. I have a master's degree in geology. Uh, I have an MBA. Um, I've worked for years in exploration. That's where I started my career. Uh, moved into uh, mining operations as well. I've run mining operations. Uh, I've worked in the corporate office of uh, major gold companies and in the finance departments and been the financial manager for uh, uh, for one of them, Homestake Mining Company, a very good company historically, um, now gone. So I've dabbled in a lot of different elements of the industry and it's given me a, a different perspective, I guess, than uh, some who may have, have stayed in a, in a single business line or career progression. This episode is a continuation of an earlier discussion with Andrew Shook on whether the mining industry is an innovation laggard. Well, if we start off with the premise that we're a laggard industry, is it because we're not very accommodating to innovation? Or is it because we're not very good at it? Or do we just struggle to come up with innovative ideas or products? Let's find out what Bruce thinks. Now, I should mention that this interview was done almost a year ago on Skype, and some of the things that Bruce mentioned may not be entirely relevant anymore. Things like, today there is much better sentiment around investing in mining, and ALS no longer provides services to the oil and gas industry. Despite all that, the lessons we can learn from this interview are still valid today. So come join us and let's explore. So what brought you to uh, ALS? Oh, gosh, what brought me to ALS? Well, I came to ALS uh, back in about 2003. It was right as the industry was coming out of a very bad recession. And it looked to me that the business of mining was going to be resurgent. And and um, I was interested in getting involved with uh, a service company in this industry because of the things that you could do to uh, create your future uh, going forward in a a business that has, you know, what I've always said is a front end as well as a back end. You can create products. You're not stuck with a global price for a commodity. Um, it's just a little bit more of a conventional approach to business than what you experience when you're working for, let's say, a gold mining company where you're selling at a world price and, and uh, there's nothing you can do to, to make that better. Can you unfold out a little bit more about 
how, say, a service provider is a little bit different than a mining company? Yeah, okay. So, you know, when you work in a mining company, um, uh, in the operating side, you are dealing with two major elements. One is optimizing uh, the extraction of the uh, ore that you're trying to uh, trying to extract. The other side is minimizing your costs. And so um, the business has a number of dimensions to it, but uh, you are stuck at the end of the day with the resource and the character of the deposit that you're dealing with at any one time. And, and that's a pretty finite space that you have to work within. When you're working in a service provider space, you, you actually have the opportunity to create products. And, and in doing so, you can add value to uh, the process that your customers are engaged with and, and create your business as you go. And so there's one more dimension that you get to play with that you just don't have uh, in a conventional mining sense. So this, uh, these products that you create, uh, do you think they are a result of research and development or are they, um, how do you create these products? What's the fundamental avenue of creating them? Yeah, um, well, I mean, that's something we're grappling with right now. And I have to say, before I go any further, that our industry, not just mining companies, as you mentioned early on, uh, but also the service providers in our in our industry have you know, none of us have been particularly creative, uh, at least over the last 10 or 20 years. And so, you know, there's not been a huge amount of change in our industry, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, what, what we do is we're uh, looking at, at making change. And I suppose if I was to go back in history, um, the major changes that have been seen in our industry, which is, you know, the provision of, of geochemical analyses has had to do with the advent of increasingly proficient instrumentation uh, that has allowed, um, you know, the simultaneous determination of of many elements at one time, for example, um, you know, that type of thing. So, you know, there's been a lot of advances that have really uh, lain in the uh, physics of optical instrumentation, the physics of uh, separating mass streams in, in a mass spectrometer, for example. Um, that haven't had much to do with with chemistry. It's much more been the physics of the instruments that we've been using. So from a, a technical point of view, I suppose one of the watershed moments for our industry in the last uh, 25 years has been the introduction of, of ICP tech instrumentation that, that has suddenly gave people the ability to rather efficiently get many, many uh, measurements of different elements all at one time. So do you think in that time, there's been any innovation in the, the, the type of businesses the service providers have run? Or do you think they've been kind of a very similar business uh, business model used by a lot of them? Um, well, you know, I, I guess our industry um, has gone from very much a, a cottage industry, mom and pop type of operations through the course of my career. Um, to very much a globalized industry with fewer players has been a tremendous amount of consolidation. Um, in the process of doing that, uh, there's been a significant development of systems, systematization of processes, um, an increase in efficiency as well that has come along with that, um, that I think has provided some benefits to 
consumers, our, our customers, in the form of you know price reductions and, and things of that nature. Uh, but in addition, there's been a, a, a significant improvement in in um, security of data of information uh, as companies have gone from you know these small shops to uh, significantly large companies with uh, public ownership themselves and the requirement to to do things properly um, and above board at all times. So you know we're we're suddenly in the same suddenly it's been in the last few years we're we're playing in the same ballpark that that our clients are you know uh, with large distributed shareholdings, um, corporate governance processes, uh, very much uh, attending to uh, health and safety procedures, all the same things that that our clients have been concerned with, we are concerned with as well. So would you say it's the same way that the mining industry has become more globalized, service providers had to follow suit and kind of do the same from being maybe perhaps more localized to being more globalized? Yep, I'd say that that's true, although um, the extent to which people have been able to assume that mantle uh, has been somewhat variable. So, you know, there's been some efficiencies provided through globalization where uh, at the very simplest level, uh, large companies are able to share backroom functions uh, and autonomize in doing so, uh, but still provide you know, front-end operations that are quite separate and distinct from one another. And, you know, that's one level of globalization that provides some benefits. But, you know, our company is is uh, much more driven by by globalized processes as well and globalized controls uh, with limb systems that operate simultaneously uh, in a worldwide network. And so we, we try and keep that globalized approach um, in a far more all-encompassing uh, sense than uh, what I believe some of our competitors do. So uh, there's different approaches. So now this is a question that I didn't send you beforehand. So you, so you have the right to say you don't want to answer it. But one of the things I guess I was thinking about is if you look at the minerals industry and oil and gas, you know, oil and gas industry tends to have these integrators kind of like Halliburton and Schlumberger. Do you think there's a, is that something that's missing in mining? Uh, you know, could the mining industry use like a middle integrator that kind of serves maybe companies better as well as small providers better as well? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of fundamental differences between the oil and gas business and mining. I think that uh, there's been a um, there's been a lot more concentration in terms of the industry evolution in the oil and gas industry. So we might look to that group to try and divine where uh, the mining industry could go, but there are also some fundamental differences between the industries, and and I guess uh, foremost among them is the nature of a reservoir as opposed to the nature of a deposit in a mineral sense. You can do a lot of work from a very small number of points uh, in the oil and gas business and get a significant amount of information that characterizes a reservoir um, that you can't do in a mining in a mineral deposit. And the reason that you can't do it in a mineral deposit and you can in oil and gas, I believe, is because the nature of a reservoir is you have permeability, you have an interconnection in the product you're wanting to extract through a large amount of space. It, it is essentially 
one transmissive body that has um, similar physical characteristics throughout. That's why you can extract it from a single point. Mining is a little bit different until, well, even when you're into solution extraction uh, uh, approaches, mining is a little bit different because you have to extract every cubic meter one at a time. And there's no inherent um, transmissibility of characteristics from one point to another. In fact, they can be quite separate and distinct from one point to another. The occurrences of gold uh, or any of the other metals you might want to extract can be quite distinct. And, you know, the concept of encapsulation, silica encapsulation um, in a gold deposit, quite common. If you had that same concept of encapsulation in an oil and gas deposit, well, you just couldn't get any out. So there's a very strong distinction in their characteristics right there. So fundamentally, then, the the product that you're designing technologies for is vastly different, in your opinion, between minerals and oil and gas then? I think that there's parallels that you can draw between the two in terms of the evolution of the provision of services to some extent. But you can't carry the argument the whole way because um, because there's a value proposition between the two that is quite different. And so while the value proposition can be carried uh, a certain distance in oil and gas, it, can, it can't be carried usually as far in the mining industry. And that introduces breakpoints in the logic and breakpoints in, in how you might actually extend uh, what you could imagine you could do from one industry to another. So, so that brings a really interesting point that I guess in geosciences, we're kind of, um, we somewhat look to the oil and gas industry to, for uh, ideas and innovations about how we would go in the future, you know, with this assumption that oil and gas from a geoscience point of view is always a little bit ahead of us. Uh, so as a service provider of the minerals industry, do you have a benchmark that you work towards or how do you foresee what the future structure of a service provider in minerals will look like? Or is that something that's done as a think tank in your company? Yeah, okay. So, I mean, we're, we're very engaged in, um, in innovation at the moment. We've got a number of significant uh, project groups that are working on, well, three different areas of innovation, frankly. And, and, um, and so we're very much grappling with that uh, very question at the moment. Um, you know, how do you go about uh, imagining what the directions will be. We do, incidentally, have the advantage of, of being a significant service provider to the oil and gas industry. And so we're engaged in uh, drilling services and, uh, and all of the analytical um, approaches that are applied in the process of, of drilling services to the oil and gas industry. And so, you know, we've got a bit of an insider view to uh, how to, what's being done in, in that industry. Um, the fundamental characteristic from, from our point of view is that people working in the oil and gas industry will pay uh, many multiples of a price uh, that anyone in the, in, in the mining industry would be prepared to pay. So that there's right away um, a finite limit that uh, you can't go past in, in provision of, of many of the types of things that we see our oil and gas clients buying that... Um, you know, we might entertain for, for minerals, but probably would never be able to get there. You know, I guess the key for us is imagining how to adapt 
the intent of some of the oil and gas services that are delivered in that industry to to the mining industry and and create um, innovative products or outcomes that that could be distinctly useful to a mining client. And then finding the right uh, cost point that would make that efficient to deliver for an explorer to to take up. So from that point of view, is cost a major driver for your services to clients? Oh, absolutely. You know, just looking at where we are in the in industry evolution, um, in the last four years, uh, a lot of demand for innovative services uh, drowned. It was, it was not really there at all. In fact, um, uh, looking at our process of trying to acquire new work, you know, the client's decisions were made um, almost exclusively around price. There were a few who were looking for um, advantage from the point of view of, you know, applications of science that were different and unique, um, innovations that would provide them uh, an advantage. Uh, but they were very few, far between, and and even then, price was a significant issue. Uh, understand because we were all under pressure. So, how much pressure does that put on you? So, you know, like obviously coming up with new techniques or innovative techniques is a costly, uh, costly enterprise. And then, do you, as a company, find it hard to find new technological solutions because of the investment that might be required in coming up with them? Um. No, that's not the, where the problem lies. The problem lies in how to uh, uh, how to construct, you know, high potential uh, projects and teams that can deliver outcomes that are meaningful uh, in in the directions we would like to go. We don't have problems imagining what we could do, uh, which, you know, I guess I was surprised personally when we turned our minds to these things. Um, we would de develop a, a list of projects, maybe 10 or 15, and uh, get to work on them. And, uh, and I would think that perhaps we'd, we'd run to the end of the list and then, you know, take another 10 years to think of another 10 or 15. It wasn't like that at all. You know, um, one project would lead to three more. And, and so, you know, the list just kept on growing and, and uh, our ability to complete became more of the problem and prioritize. Uh, the the high potential projects from the low potential ones, um, and and that is a distinct issue because uh, you may be able to complete a project in terms of the technical uh, problem that is posed, but uh, converting that then to a success requires you know that there's uptake on the other side on the client side, and that was an early discovery for us where. Uh, technical solutions arose, um, there was no one buying on the other side. And and uh, so there's a certain amount of uh, willingness to take up innovation that we find to be uh, sometimes lacking. And uh, and actually, there's a certain amount of, of, I don't know what you'd call it, but fashionability behind um, uh, the the technologies that people are willing to consider um, as opposed to technologies that people would prefer to leave behind even though they have significant application and historically have been well used so you know that's been an interesting discovery for us as we've gone through this process I mean I think that's a fascinating uh, point that 
the development process of new technologies or new processes isn't the bottleneck. So if I'm getting that right, you're saying that it's the commercialization of a lot of that stuff from your point of view that ends to be a bottleneck? Yeah, look, commercialization is is always a challenge um, with any type of innovation uh, that comes about. And and I guess, you know, we, we've innovated our standard methods, for example, well-known methods, multi-element methods, uh, provided additional levels of uh, precision and accuracy detection limits uh, that hadn't been achieved before. You know, these are things that are relatively easy to understand um, and are more readily picked up than other things. But, you know, on the other hand, you have to convince clients that uh, that the effort you're going to, which implies an additional cost, uh, is worth paying for. And, and so to make it worthwhile, clients have to be able to identify an additional use for the data that they couldn't have achieved before. And for that to happen, there has to be innovation on the user end. Um, there has to be some kind of, the users have to come to the party, in other words, um, to, to take that data and, and work with it in ways that perhaps they couldn't have before, extract more meaningful uh, outcomes and realize an advantage because they've paid the price for it. And so there is a cycle involved um, that we can push towards, but past which we can't. Uh, we can show the advantages. Uh, we can, um, in terms of the technical performance of the method, but how that then translates into an end use, uh, we really can only go so far. That's a really interesting point. Now, I don't think I really answered your question entirely because part of your question is how hard is it to to come up with innovations in in hard times and i suppose that's been another thing that was really fascinating to me because you know we hit that downturn uh in about 2013 when it started and uh and, and went through some significant layoffs i we laid off a tremendous amount of people good people who who were contributing well to our organization and as we went through that process, realizing that we were losing skill sets as we did that, it became important for us to find ways to turn what was a very discouraging time into something positive. And so uh, given that some of our more talented people that we were determined to keep uh, were now somewhat underused, uh, we found that if we turned their attention to this type of project, we were able to extract some pretty significant benefits and people who had great skill sets who might have skipped to other industries uh, were suddenly reinvigorated in the process and and uh, were kept very satisfied working on brand new things no one had done before and so for us it became um, a really uplifting exercise in a very very tough time and delivered results for us uh, within 12 months that began to pay dividends. And so we received benefit uh, and were able to retain some people, not everyone by any stretch, in the process of doing this. And frankly, I think that it kept morale uh, at a level that was unimaginable for the circumstances. Um, and as I said, kept people engaged who uh, might have left the industry otherwise. So it was very, very helpful to our to our company to get into that process at that very moment, um, as hard as it might have been from a financial point of view. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting point because that kind of goes in line with the well-used phrase of necessity is the mother of invention. So you, you obviously had you know, uh, a desire to do something to try to keep people and that led you down the path. So I think that's really, really interesting. And I, and I also like your other point that, you know, at some point us as the industry, we also have to have the appetite for the stuff that you develop. Otherwise, the handover doesn't really work. You know, you develop something and if you don't have the appetite, then it just kind of sits in this limbo land where neither company or neither entity really wants to take it any further. So... Yeah, and look, you know, um, just as an idea, the way we go about our projects, we actually rarely will engage in a project without a, uh, a significant client participating um, as an advisor and as a screener of, of the results, in other words. And so, you know, we don't look for financial support in these things, but we look for active input from, you know, People we view to be competent clients to, uh, to help guide our, our, uh, our efforts and, and gauge the results, um, you know, with honest feedback. And, and so, you know, we've, we've done that with quite a number of, of our valued clients. And that's what's made these things work. There is, however, sometimes personal biases in the, on the part of individuals who participate, ourselves included. Um, where you start pursuing an idea with uh, great intentions, believing uh, that it will be fantastically useful, um, and you still fall prey to uh, the, the conventions of, of what is what is hot in our business today and what is not. It, it has nothing to do with efficacy, uh, proven performance. Um, there's just some things that you can't sell today. So, so can we talk a little bit about how you measure like return on your investment in technology? You know, do you need a certain percentage of the industry to take it up to kind of meet your costs? If you're going down the path of developing something new, how do you measure its ultimate effect to the business, to your business? Look, we we probably don't take uh, an approach that would be considered to be best practice, frankly. What we do is ad hoc. Um, we work with our R&D process uh, through people who are also engaged in the operating elements of our business. So we don't have a defined R&D group. We don't have R&D cost centers. Um, the areas, locations that are doing the development in our system tend to be uh, the major um, operating locations with the the individuals who are best suited from an expertise point of view to conduct a development exercise and um, also locations where they have enough of um, enough of a of a financial margin to be able to to cover the costs and and it's absorbed in in operations so we're not measuring the cost of our R&D uh, as we do it it's not um, a continuous effort although frankly uh, we've never stopped uh, doing research and development. We don't have any individuals who are devoted to it full time. Uh, we uh, define projects at a very high level. When I say that, I'm, I mean I'm personally engaged with all of these projects and, and lead them all. Um, that's not to say that I actually do any of the R&D, but I am screening the projects. I'm making sure that the individuals who are engaged uh, have the time free 
so, so that they can pursue these things and they're not consumed by operating responsibilities. So I do try and carve some time out around uh, their R&D exercise. I track the projects to make sure that progress is going on and, um, and look for outcomes that I believe will be meaningful to the company at the end of the day. So that's how we run them. When you talk about measuring the business outcomes, our primary gauge is, is whether or not we are getting inquiry from our client base uh, around new methods and technologies. Because if we're not getting that inquiry, then it's probably because we're not providing anything that's seen as, as innovative. And, and as soon as that happens, then we become worried that we're not advancing. And so, you know, our primary measure of success is feedback from clients and the character of that feedback. So in saying that, how important do you think research and development is to to your company? Do you think it's a fundamental part of your business or do you think it's a thing that you that you do when you have excess capacity or okay. how do you define it? So I've, I've been with, with this company now for 13 years and, and I'd say for the first uh, the first five years I was with the company anyway, we didn't do a lot of R&D. We were very much sticking to our knitting, you know, looking for innovation from our own suppliers, ironically. And uh, that is how things had changed um, over time up until that point. You know, new instrumentation, new cap- capabilities from instrumentation is what gave groups like ours the innovation to pass along to clients. So yes, a mining company could say our suppliers are innovating, but it actually wasn't coming from a first-order supplier. It was coming from a second-order supplier, if you know what I mean. Today, it's a very different story. Today, the dynamics of of our industry are such that I think we're going through a a technological revolution. Um, And I think that's been more and more apparent over the last two or three years to the point where today... Um, I think if you're not innovating and looking for ways to take on uh, new innovative uh, approaches, uh, your days are probably numbered, whether you're a supplier or a miner, for that matter, because there's some really exciting and fundamental change happening in our business that I think is going to drive the next wave of discovery. You know, and I think that's made innovation an absolutely fundamental cornerstone of, of what we have to do as a supplier uh, today. And so it's become a, an important part of our strategy. So I guess we've talked um, a little bit about that there is this a bridge between the technologies you develop and how well they're taken over by clients. Do you care to comment why the industry is so, um, so hesitant in taking up new technology? Well... I mean, you could answer that simply by by bringing up the character of our of our economic climate for the last four years. I mean, there's been a, a dearth of new money in in the mining industry that has uh, fueled you know exploration or any kind of innovation in the business. You know, mining companies have been very focused on um, on costs uh, to the exclusion of all else, and for good reason. And so that really put a damper on on innovation. I suppose one of the things that you do see when you come up with uh, new approaches is that you may see a new line item in a in an exploration budget, and and a new line item in an exploration budget uh, up until very recently has been a very unwelcome thing. 
So, you know, it, that has stifled change. However, as I mentioned, I think there's been a growing perception by many in the industry that that approach, that attitude, really has to change. And so um, I think that we will see people embarking on um, probably conservative spends uh, geared towards new technology, um, new uh, applications of science that can help the discovery process. And uh, I think that the, the rate of that adoption of new things will increase over the next uh, three to five years at a dramatic pace. Hmm. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Um, so you think that the, the future of the industry, both from, say, your client base as well as your company, will look fundamentally different than it looks right now? I think it'll look very different. I think from a mining company point of view, uh, uh, I think that the, the technology-driven components and the resource reserve uh, engineering processes uh, will become much, much more sophisticated. And, uh, and I think that'll be a huge benefit to the parties that can get on board uh, early and become real experts at, at that process. There's, there's tremendous value to be delivered in that, in that area. So having said that, our business, the business of, of provision of geochemical services, is likely to change very dramatically as a result. Do you care to comment how? <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's yet to be seen, but I think, I think that there will be a lot, a, a lot of focus on, on non-standard analytical uh, approaches, things, okay, we could, we could put it as simply as this. You know, for years now, companies like ours have been generating multi-element results of up to 50 elements for companies to take and use in the exploration and resource definition process. You know, by my estimation, of those 50 elements that people would be uh, extracting from our analytical service, maybe five see any real constructive, concentrated use. The rest, Frankly, I'm not sure that anyone really knows how to begin to use them. And, and so um, that's not to say that they're not important. Far from it. Uh, I think that, you know, we've just not been able to grapple with the data density behind all of the indications that those additional elements provide. And that has been the problem so far. The luxury has been there that we haven't had to deal with those problems. But as discovery rates drop, uh, and the imperative becomes greater. I think we're going to have to get a lot better at dealing with um, with those extra elements, the extra data points that lie within the analyses we're paying for, and all of the indicators, even outside of geochemistry, that, that go along with. Them. And um, and it's really not just the discovery process I'm talking about. There would be the, the beneficiary either. It's it's the uh, the, the milling processes, the beneficiation of the ore itself, um, right through to the, the, responsible, um, the responsible comportment of waste uh, and, and how, we, how we deal with waste. You know, uh, whether we put things into uh, large conventional tailing dams that have obvious uh, hazard, hazards associated with them or deal with them in more intelligent you know, environmental concerns that come along with waste piles and, and debris piles of all sorts. 
need to be better managed, and they can be better managed if we know more about the materials we're disposing. And and so those types of things, I think, will give huge value. I think um, I think you've hit the nail on the head. You know, I think uh, the amount of data that we've produced hasn't quite been replicated to the amount of knowledge that we've taken out of that data, and that gap has got bigger and bigger in in recent times, anyways. And I think the the element suite is a great example of that. You know, we have far more data from a geochem point of view, but our understanding and our knowledge or our ability to use it hasn't quite caught up to the same level. No, no, that's right. I think those are um, pretty much all the questions I had, Bruce. And I, I think that was, that was a great discussion. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I think it's really good to get your insights on, essentially as an outsider looking in. You were an insider at one point, and now you get to uh, look from an outside in and then see what we're doing. So that's, so that's great. No, that's right. That's right. Well, thank you very much, Ahmad, for the opportunity to talk to you. In our opinion, outsourcing of intellectual capital to service providers has resulted in a structural problem. When it comes to technical innovation, who is prioritizing it? Who is influencing the outcomes? Service providers are now the very people we need to listen to. Now, I am sure some individuals will see this differently. But put your whole industry hat on for a second. There are bigger issues than at a company or individual level. Who is leading who? Are we rudderless? It sure as hell feels like it. At the end of the day, service providers are restricted in what they can do, not what they can imagine. And the reason for that restriction is us. Our willingness to take up innovation is the key issue here. We have to start realizing the long-term value that an innovation can provide and not focus on the short-term cost of it. And we have to acknowledge the role that cyclicity of the industry plays in this. In booms, we usually don't have time to innovate because we need to get shit done. But in a bust, we're too concerned about everything costing too much. So when do we have time to innovate? On top of all of this, service providers now also have to take the financial risk of commercializing technological innovations. But do you think it's fair that we burden them with this risk and then complain about the cost of it when they try to sell it back to us? It seems like innovation is on everyone's lips these days. So we leave you with a question. Is your company innovative? If not, why not? Exploration Radio is brought to you by Steve and Amart. Our producer and all-round go-to guy is Dan Hershowitz. This podcast is recorded at the Perth Music House. If you'd like to know more about Exploration Radio, check us out on explorationradio.com. Or you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And as always, if you like this podcast, please review us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, let's keep exploring.